Hello everyone and welcome to the ALN Academy podcast. In our previous masterclass, Ian Gaita took us through shareholder agreements in detail, their key clauses and provisions to consider when developing a shareholder agreement. The objective of today's masterclass is to discuss the role of engineering procurement contracts, the main elements of these documents, and how risks are allocated under different EPC structures, as well as considerations that should be made when drafting these contracts. This masterclass is part of a series of virtual training that the ALN Kenya Projects and Infrastructure Department has prepared on public-private partnerships and project finance. Amin Musa is partner and head of the Projects and Infrastructure Department at ALN Kenya. He's a highly regarded energy and projects lawyer in Kenya, ranked in band one in the projects and energy category by the Chambers Global 2022. He has developed a dynamic and market-leading energy and projects practice at ALN Kenya and is involved in advising on various matters, including construction and ONM contracts, government contract work, debt and equity financing, and land acquisitions, among others. I am pleased to introduce to you Amin Musa. In this particular session, we are going to focus on construction contracts uh, and what we call ONM contracts, operation and maintenance contracts. These contracts are obviously a key feature of the overall matrix of contracts in a public-private partnership project, and therefore understanding how these contracts work and how they fit into the overall project and how they fit into the overall role of contracts uh, within a project is, is fundamental and critical to be able to properly structure a bankable uh, infrastructure project. So what we are going to focus on today in relation to construction contracts and O&M is firstly, what, what are the roles of these contracts within the overall project scheme? What are the elements of each of these contracts? And most importantly, how do you allocate risk within these two contracts? taking into account the risks you are taking in relation to your other contracts, whether it is the offtake agreement, whether it is the financing agreements, how do you now start allocating risks that you have taken on under contracts like the offtake and the financing agreements, and how do you deal with that under the construction contracts and the operation and maintenance contracts? So that is the focus of the discussion today. If you are a sponsor of a project and you're asking yourself about how do I structure my construction contract, taking into account the rest of my contracts 
in relation to my offtake and my financing agreements. There are a couple of key questions you probably need to ask yourself before you think about settling down on a particular contract structure. The first point you need to take into consideration is what is the degree of control I as a project sponsor want to have in relation to the construction and operation of this project? The second, the second issue you need to consider is where is your money coming from and what are the expectations of your financiers in relation to your construction contract? So for example, in relation to the issue of degree of control, on one extreme end, you as a project sponsor can actually undertake construction and operations of the project uh, because it would be your view that you have the necessary expertise uh, and experience to be able to undertake this. This is not uncommon where you have contractors and operators playing the role of sponsors uh, in the project. But going back to my second issue about lender considerations, many lenders would be concerned about the sponsor undertaking the role of the contractor and the operator because of the potential for conflicts of interest between these three roles. So again, factoring in where your money is coming from and what the expectations of your financing parties are vis-a-vis -vis the level of control you would like to have in relation to construction and operation is extremely important. The other issue as a sponsor you need to think about when you're deciding on a principal structure, especially in relation to the construction contract is, how complicated is this project? How uncertain are the costs in relation to this project? And therefore, what is my ability to fix time and cost in relation to this project? The more complex the project, the more uncertain the project, the more difficult it is to be able to fix time and cost in relation to your construction and operational issues. So having dealt with the fundamental principles around thinking about how you consider structuring a construction contract, what type of construction contracts do you want to use? For purposes of this discussion today, the idea is to focus on one of the more common uh, construction contracts that is used in the market. And this is what we call an EPC contract, an engineering procurement construction contract. The reason a contract 
of this nature is viewed favorably by sponsors and lenders is because it has certain elements in this contract whereby risk can be allocated and taken away from the sponsor and pushed to the contractor and the operator. So the key principles of an EPC contract that allows you to move risk from the sponsor to the contractor is that firstly, you have what we call a single point of responsibility. As you can imagine, an overall construction arrangement has a number of elements to it. You need to design whatever you are building. You then need to have a logistics and transport element to it. There is a supply element of bringing in goods and materials. And then there is the whole building and installation of whatever infrastructure you're putting together. What an EPC contract does is effectively to wrap all these different elements and provide what we call a single point of responsibility. In other words, what it does is it makes one contractor, the EPC contractor, the single point of responsibility for all these entire different elements that ultimately results in a built product for you as a sponsor. The other two key elements that you should find in an EPC contract is that largely the price and the time will be fixed. In other words, you pass on a significant responsibility and risk to the contractor to build within a fixed period of time and to build within a fixed cost. And as you can imagine, these three elements would be looked at most favorably by lenders and sponsors. However, it is important as a sponsor for you to understand the tension between pricing and passing on risk to the contractor. Because what always happens is that the more risk you pass to the contractor, frankly, the more expensive the project will be, the more expensive your construction cost is. And that balance between risk and price is one of the key issues that sponsors and lenders need to consider in terms of finding the appropriate balance. In addition to having a single EPC contract, uh, we, are, we are also seeing the possibility of having multiple EPC contracts that are then wrapped over what we call an EPCM structure whereby a manager is appointed 
to coordinate and oversee the different EPC contracts to try and ensure that you can get a number of the efficiencies that you could have got under a single EPC contract, but potentially with the possibility of saving on costs. Uh, what this generally means, however, is that the sponsor also, together with the manager, will have a greater role in coordinating the different contractors to make sure that your fundamental principles of trying to fix cost and trying to fix time is still possible, despite the fact that you're using multiple contractors. As with every single contract in a PPP structure, risk, understanding risk and understanding how you mitigate risk is fundamental. As you can imagine in a construction contract, there are numerous risks that need to be considered uh, by a sponsor and how they deal with these risks vis-a-vis -vis the contractor and other third parties. You will have risk in relation to design, coordination, procurement, site risk, logistics, regulatory risk, and all these risks need to be considered and based on how you deal with these risks, you then need to figure out what kind of provisions do I need in my construction contract? Your construction contract is typically going to have a fair amount of detail on various types of issues, which ultimately go towards this fundamental question around how do I allocate risk on those key issues? So if you look at what the key issues are when you are putting together a construction contract, what the role of the contractor is vis-a-vis -vis the role of the employer is obviously fundamental. And this goes down to specifically the issue of risk allocation. Is it the contractor or is it the employer that will develop the design of the project? It is not unusual, for example, for the design to be initially developed by the sponsors and then passed on to the contractor. The problem with that type of arrangement is the contractor in turn is going to say, if there is an error or a flaw in the design, then I, the contractor, cannot be responsible for the ultimate end product. You can imagine that a conversation of that nature would make many lenders uh, deeply nervous and concerned. And so what you find typically is that a practical solution is reached whereby the sponsor takes his designs and asks the contractor to review them. 
He then asked the contractor to, to take full responsibility in relation to the design so that what we call the blame game in construction contracts, we do not have that issue if down the line, the end product doesn't work because there was an issue with the design. Obviously, a conversation like this with the contractor is going to result in increased cost to your construction contract. But in many cases, these will be requirements of lenders to ensure that you have a bankable project. Site risk is another clear area where a conversation will be had around who takes risk in relation to soil conditions, access to site, topography, and all these other issues, especially where the land is owned or controlled by the sponsor. Again, these are issues that require conversations with the contractor. And on each of these issues, as you pass along risk to the contractor, you should frankly expect the construction price to increase. Whilst we will not be able to have a, the time to be able to go through each of these elements, uh, we will try and go through some of these elements to give you a flavor of some of the issues you need to consider. Pricing and payment structures are obviously going to be one of the key areas of commercial discussion between a sponsor and a contractor. On the pricing issue, there are a number of ways to structure your contract. You can have in a typical EPC structure, a single fixed price lump sum contract price. However, it is not unusual for employers to shy away from that structure is because typically a price structure of that nature is going to mean a higher contract price. So for infrastructure projects that are financed on a non-recourse basis, fixed lump sum price contracts are fairly normal. On the other hand, we find more traditional real estate projects, even those of a very uh, large value, uh, tend to shy away from the pure fixed price contract uh, and tend to favor a unit price structure. What do I mean by a unit price structure? Under such a contract, the contractor agrees to fix the prices of all his inputs, labor, goods, and service. What, however, he doesn't fix is the quantities that are required. So for example, under such an arrangement, the contractor will agree to fix the price of steel or the price of cement. But what he will not fix is the quantities that are required. And so 
as an employer, you take a risk on the quantities that would be required for the project. What you are then doing is relying on the fact that your quantity surveyor has prepared a bills of quantities that is in fact accurate so that you ultimately end up with a final price that matched what you originally envisaged. But in this particular structure, as I said earlier, the contractor refuses to take the risk in relation to how much quantity of material will be used. These structures are fairly common in large-scale real estate projects in East Africa. So understanding the risk around how you deal with the unit price arrangement is extremely important. You can also have a cost plus structure. In this type of arrangement, you agree with the contractor on what his actual costs are, and then you agree to provide a margin over and above the cost. In this part of the world, this, these type of pricing mechanisms are fairly unusual because most of the times, employers do not have a good handle on what the actual costs are uh, of the contractor. Secondly, uh, and I believe this is the correct view, is that a structure of this nature does not incentivize the contractor to maintain costs at an appropriate level. Because frankly, the higher the costs, the greater the margins. So whilst a structure like this is possible for certain types of infrastructure, uh, they are very rarely used uh, in this part of the world. <clears throat> the other thing that needs a clear focus and understanding of in relation to EPC contracts is time and cost. What are the provisions you need to think about in relation to time and cost? As I said earlier, the fundamental principle of an EPC contract is to fix time and to fix costs. But frankly, that is easier said than done because you are going to have fairly detailed discussions and negotiations with a contractor around those circumstances around which time and cost could change, where the contractor will say, upon the occurrence of the following events, I am expecting my cost to change, I am expecting my time to change, and I am further expecting no penalties being levied on me for these events. What these events are and how you structure them within the contract is probably one of the key areas of specialism that is required to put together a bankable project. 
So as a matter of principle, how do you try and fix time in relation to an EPC contract? What you do is you create a structure in the contract whereby you set a starting time for the project to commence and you set an end date, an anticipated end date, when you expect the project to complete. If that date is not achieved, you then have a second structure below that, whereby you are entitled to levy what we call delay liquidated damages for each day or each month, there is a delay in getting to the time you expected or anticipated to get to. These liquidated damages are what creates the incentive for the contractor to complete within time. From a legal perspective, it's extremely important to understand what your jurisdiction allows in relation to delay liquidated damages. In many common law jurisdictions, a liquidated damages structure that is structured on the basis of a penalty could be deemed to be unenforceable. And therefore, it's extremely important that in those jurisdictions, <clears throat> you ensure that your provisions are in fact legally enforceable. Whilst you agree with these key principles in relation to what the time expectations are, what the liquidated damages are, the contractor will seek to negotiate what the carve-outs are to changes in time, whereby he is not penalized for that. Typically, a contractor will insist that events such as force majeure, political events, variations, are negotiated as carve-outs to the principle of time. Thank you for listening to this episode. In our next masterclass, Amin Musa, partner at Airline Kenya, will take us through the role of operations and maintenance contracts in PPP projects. Please remember to subscribe to our Airline Academy podcast to receive notifications when you upload new episodes. The Airline Academy podcast is available on all podcast platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to our Airline Academy YouTube channel and follow us on social media. Stay up to current in our content by following at Airline Academy on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Goodbye.